Rosalie here. I am the little helper of the Live Feisty Media Podcasts. The Iron Women Podcast, I think, is one of the best podcasts in the whole entire world. I want to be a professional triathlete when I grow up because it makes us healthy and strong to do lots of triathlon. I also think I might want to be a hairdresser. Just saying. You can help Iron Women grow by using the codes Iron Women when you order from our sponsors. It really helps. Those sponsors are Crave Jerky, F2C Nutrition, Sound Probiotics, Coffee Method, Rudy Project, and Smashfest Queen. Go to ironwomenpodcast.com to find all codes and links. And now, introducing your hosts, Alyssa Kadeski and Haley Chura. Hi, Haley. How are you? Alyssa, I'm pretty good. How are you doing? It's getting closer. Are you are you in taper time yet? I have. Do you taper, do you taper for something like this? I'm just, I'm very curious. Yeah, we're definitely going to taper me because we've been doing a good bit of work in the last couple of weeks. And so I basically, I did a big week last week and then I took three kind of easier days and then I did one more five day kind of build and I have my last day of that tomorrow but Haley, the last two days, basically, we, and I say we, my coach, Hillary, and I came up with this idea for the last big block. And I was like, I think we should just go for some, like, vertical amount of climbing rather than miles in some sense, right? Because the whole long trail has about 63,000 feet of climbing through the 273 miles. And I, I would say days one and two have about... 15 to 20,000 each in them. It's a lot of climbing in those first couple days. And so we were like, well, let's like kind of simulate that. And some of you, like, while you're tired, we'll do these three big days. And the first two will be all about climbing where you basically go to the ski slope and you just hike up and jog down until you get to 8,000 feet of climbing. And then you do it again the next day. And so, and then tomorrow, so today was that second day. And then tomorrow, I have an 18 mile long run on the long trail. So it's hard to get to 18,000 or 8,000 feet of climbing Haley, because the mountain has 2000 over two miles, right? So you get up and you're like pretty tired. And then you're like, shoot, now I have to jog one jog back down and then two do that four more times. And so the there's families out there who are hiking to get, you know, like a family hike in, right? So they're doing it maybe once if they can get all the way up. And I'm running into them through my hike and some of them I'm like laughing, I guess. And Do they cheer for you? Well, they look very confused. And I mean, and they're all just like, you know, not in a great state, some of them, because they're so tired <laughs> and they don't realize what they got themselves into. And so, of course, they want to know kind of what I'm doing and blah, blah. And then 
inevitably they're kind of like, well, can you take our picture? And so I was totally the mountain photographer yesterday. I like needed to start a little business and then be like, I'll email you them for $2 a photo or something because I could have made bank with the photos I was taking of these families yesterday. And you know, I was an excellent, excellent photographer on the mountain. So that was fun. Well, hopefully maybe some of them will look you up and you just, you need to start bringing business cards and then they'll come and cheer you on while you make your long trail record attempt in a couple weeks here. I I, think that'd be kind of cool. I thought of that. Most of them I think are just kind of looking, they like, I tell them what I'm training to do and then their face is just like blank. And they're like, wait a second, what? (laughs) But a few of them, some of them have been like, wait, there's that movie. And I'm like, yeah. So some of them have seen Finding Traction and then- when I see people actually on the long trail, it's been fun because they are, a lot of people are through hiking or section hiking. And so they're just kind of going in, you know, order. Whereas I'm kind of popping in and out of these different sections as I go to see different parts. And so I've started to run into a lot of the same people. So I actually do, you know, they know me and I know them and like, I'll be like, Hey, like T-Rex. <laughs> That's like some guy's yeah, trail I was gonna name. Ask, do you have a trail name? I don't. And it's, it's actually kind of an interesting like gender study, I'm sure, because I would say 95% of the men I meet introduce themselves to me after we chat in their trail name. Okay. But none of the women have not a single one. And so maybe if I ask, they kind of tell me, but it's just such a weird thing to me, Haley, because like, what if we had Iron Man names, right? Like (laughs) we got to pick like a different persona, (laughs) but it's just funny to me. Like, six months long maybe we could deserve names but some but, of these um, people just go hike for a weekend and they take on this trail name persona and are I'm there not books? sure I really understand it really are there books that you can fill out that like on the on the long trail there like are there. I've, been on the, I've been on the Appalachian Trail and I've I have written in the books even yeah, when I do the day same thing they just hike pop out of nowhere month. you're just hiking along and then there's a little stand with a book in it and like a pencil and just to keep, I think the Green Mountain Club and the other conservatories along the way, like keep track of how many people are there, where they're going, what they're doing, like if there's pets out there, that kind of thing. And I think in theory, if someone was reported missing, they would start to check those to, you know, to see right. the last location. I'm, well, yeah, that's probably like a big, big part of the reason they're out there. But there are people just sign them in their trail names. It's very fine. I've just used my you name don't? for now. No. <laughs> Maybe by the end of this. Thinking back to my time on the AT in Georgia, and I was, I just did day runs out there, my friend Thomas and I, and we signed like every book. (laughs) We loved it. And you read some of the stories, and then people wrote really funny stories, and I need to go back and do it again. It was fun. Yeah. But um, it's work on that. We have a couple more weeks to come up with your trail name. That's true. That's true. It won't be. We'll come up with a better name for your movie too, other than Alyssa's Run. <laughs> I still laugh about that one. I'm like, Haley, you're more creative than this. Anyway, here in Bozeman, I actually rode outside last week. Can you believe it? What? <laughs> Barely. So the snow's melted off the glaciers and you're able to ride? Yeah, I rode outside and um, with a group. And I was trying to think back. I think the last time I did a group ride with more than like two people was actually in 2015. So... It has been a while and it was fun. We did a little 4th of July ride and yeah, it was, it was great fun. We had really good weather, really good conditions. It was 39 degrees when we started. So it was a little chilly, but then it it got up to like maybe 70. It was kind of perfect. But then the weather, weather has warmed up a bit, which is good and getting outside a little bit more. So I am enjoying summer. I forget how nice summer is here. (laughs) 
like it's we had such short, a big huh, but it's nice it is oh but the days are long and they're beautiful and I'm just soaking up every minute so it is it's it's really really nice here so I'm, I'm excited to be getting out a little bit more and getting some miles under my belt good 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 and so Haley while I've been working on some of the last of my preparations for the FKT attempt run, I have been dialing in my own nutrition, but I've also been working a lot on my crew nutrition. And can you guess what the number one thing my crew is requesting for crew nutrition? Before I guess, I do want to say this is a super important thing because I think many times I've seen it Ironman when people are there cheering, they don't eat or drink enough and they bonk bad. And I actually have been cheering for a race once and I've bonked terrible because I didn't carry enough snacks. And now when I cheer, I actually do plan out my like cheer nutrition. So imagine when you're doing a, you know, five day or four day running event, your crew needs to be very well fed and hydrated. So, um, I'm going to get guests crave jerky, um, Basil lime flavored. Wait, is that a flavor? <laughs> they haven't gotten to get as specific on the flavors yet, but crave jerky was one of the most requested items for the crew to have. So they will, you know, my job is just to make sure they're happy. So they are like, you know, like you said, that they have sustenance and they're sustained to be helping me get through all the points. Right. So I do not want to come into a crew stop and have a bunch of like hangry people and no one has energy to be running with me next. So they are going to be getting hydration. plenty of Do you, Are you hydration? F2C, some hydrodurance? You yes. might even need glycodurance. You might even need some extra calories through liquid calories. I yes. feel like when you're no, that we long, will have all of that. And my fingers are crossed that F2C is actually, we'll have in my hands to the official five to one the glycodurance five to one. I don't know. Do you know what they're calling oh. that? What is that? Is that what it's called? I don't, I think it's top secret. I haven't, okay. I haven't actually tried it. Yeah, I they think might not have brand new. officially branded it with a name, but I've been experimenting with some samples of that and you can actually kind of mix your own, which I've been doing a little bit of and I love it. So hopefully that will be there, you know, for me and them to be using. And also if I know Sarah at all from her iron women coverage in Kona, I know she hits those greens every morning, no matter where she is. So I'll have a tub of farmer greens for everyone as well. So I think people are, you know, I don't think the food issue is going to be the problem if the crew drops the ball anywhere with this. Are you worried about dropping your crew like when you're running and they just can't keep up? <laughs> um, I wasn't until the other day when we realized that I am pretty fit right now and I am pretty like my skills right now on the trails are really good. And so... We had one of the one of the top crew members was here and he was struggling to maintain the pace at some point. So we're just hoping that, you know, the others are taking it seriously. As long as everyone took it seriously and is fit, then we'll be fine. Well, I hope that you are not humble when you're out there. And if anyone is holding you back, you leave them. Okay. You have my permission. You can just tell them to call me and they can complain to me and I'll have a little pity party for them, but you leave them and you go get that record. I know. I know. No, that shouldn't be an issue. Nice. So a quick note, our editor, Aaron Hamilton is doing the out of darkness, Seattle walk. I believe the walk is happening in October and it is The purpose is to raise awareness and money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So Aaron has a fundraising webpage, and we will link to that in our show notes if anyone is interested in supporting Aaron in her fundraising and in her walk coming up later this fall. 
And Haley, I bet our listeners are assuming since we kind of diverted from our usual track with triathlete interviews last week with Jesse and Keegan, we're on first name basis now, obviously, that we would return to a triathlete for this week. But you guys, we have someone very special in store for you where you're we're not quite back to full on triathlon interviews yet. But before we get to her, we do have some triathlon talk because the race this past weekend were pretty exciting, Haley. Yeah, that's, I think exciting might be an understatement. Daniela Reef at the Ironman European Championships in Frankfurt won the women's race, but also plays, would have placed seventh in the men's race, <laughs> which is incredible. I mean, that's at a championship race to be in the money in the men's race is wow. I have no words. Yeah. I mean, there's just not a lot that you can even say to describe that, but, and I mean, she's beating men that have been in the top 10, the top five in Kona before. Right. So yeah, that's just next level what we're seeing out of her. So I guess Kona's going to be a, a, a fun race to watch. Yes. And it, there were a couple of rookies behind her. We had Sarah true in second place, running a 254 marathon in her debut. We talked to Sarah in January. She was, you know, tentative about, I think, doing Ironman and the distance. And she has such a strong, you know, short course background. We're getting fourth in the Olympics. So, but running a 10K and running a marathon are quite different. But Sarah showed she was ready getting second place. Sarah Crowley, last year's champion, rounded out the podium in third place. And, you know, she was third in Kona, third place in Frankfurt. And then we also had Ann Hogg, another rookie and kind of who just burst on the scene this year after many years in the ITU coming in fourth. So some really, you know, surprising debuts there. Kona is going to be exciting, I think. And yeah, who knows what Daniela can do there. If she's in this good of form in, in July, what's going to happen in October? I, I'm, yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. And there were a couple other 70.3s happening. I know I saw Lauren Brandon got her first 70.3 win down in Ecuador. And I think Laurel Wassener was second and Kelsey Withrow was third. I think all those ladies are are friends of the podcast, if you will. And then over in Sweden, we had 70.3 Jankopig. <laughs> I think it's Jan, Jan Shoping. I always think of that board game. When I see it, it's like it starts with a J and my brain just translates it to like Chickapig. Do you guys play Chickapig in Bozeman? <laughs> no, I've never heard of that. It's a board game, I think. Kelly O'Meara from If We Were Riding was racing and she she gave us like a little thing on how to, you know, a primer on how to pronounce it. I thought it was Jan, Jan Choping. Jan Choping. Yeah, that sounds anyway. right. Lisa Norden, another Olympic silver medalist taking the win there. We haven't seen Lisa race in a little while. So it was cool to see her, you know, I guess racing in her home country and getting the W. Kim Morrison off of her back-to-back racing in Finland. I think she won last weekend in Finland and then second in Sweden. And then Carrie Morris, third. Okay, thank you. I couldn't read my I own handwriting. Really, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, my chicken scratch here. What was that name? Awesome. Congratulations to those women in, in Sweden. Sean, wait, Jan Schoping. <laughs> and all right, so it's interview time. And we have a very special interview for you guys today. I think Haley and I were both super excited to talk to Sarah Thomas. Uh, and I think you can hear that. We just had so many questions for her. And that's Haley, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about her? 
Yes. So last August, Sarah Thomas started swimming south in Lake Champlain in New York. It was August 7th. And this is a lake on the, I guess, New York-Vermont border. And nearly three days later, in the early hours of August 10th, she returned ashore, completing the longest current neutral swim ever. That's men or women, longest. She swam 104 miles in 67 hours, 16 minutes, and 12 seconds. Yes, we had a lot of questions. How is this possible? (laughs) We're going to ask Sarah all the questions and hear more right after the break. We are grateful to be supported by Crave Jerky, Coffee Message, F2C Nutrition, Sound Probiotics, Rudy Project, and Smashfest Queen. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi. And so, Sarah, I grew up swimming. I am a swimmer, and I read your resume, and it blows my mind, right? You have done a 104-mile swim. That's nonstop, 67 hours of swimming. And before we talk about that, I just need to know, like, how did you get to that point? Were you always a distance swimmer? And did you grow up doing a lot of open water swimming? Well, first of all, I'm crazy. Um, I think that has always been the case. Um, Let's see. I did grow up swimming. I swam in high school and then I swam for the University of Connecticut, but I didn't get into open water swimming until I moved to Denver. And um, I started with a 10K and then just kind of gradually took it from there. One day you're doing a 10K and the next time, next day you're doing 100 miles. I'm not sure it goes quite like that, but (laughs) we'll talk to you a little bit more, I think, and get some more of that information out there. But so before we get too far into it, I know like with running and triathlon, you hear a lot of people use terms kind of however they think they should be used. And a lot of the times they're, you know, wrong to people in the know. So can you help teach us about the terminology of marathon swimming? Like at what point is a swim long enough to become a marathon swim and are there different classifications for swims done in certain types of water, like based on temperature, salt water versus fresh water, with and without a current, all of the wetsuit rules, like what do we have there? How does that even, can you even kind of scrape the surface for us? Sure. Um, just basically, most people would consider a marathon swim anything over a distance of 10K, so a distance of 10K or longer. Um, there are different types of swims out there where you can do it with a wetsuit or not with a wetsuit. But if you are following just traditional marathon swimming rules, um, sometimes called English channel rules, you are doing it uh, without a wetsuit. So you're only wearing a swimsuit, a swim cap, um, sometimes earplugs, um, and your goggles and that's it. Um, and that's just kind of the basics. They do categorize swims sometimes into with a current or without a current. For example, even the English Channel has a current. So um, it's measured as point to point. So the English Channel is 21 miles, even though with the current, you might be swimming closer to 30, depending on what day you get. Um, But it's still just a 21 mile swim. So if you're swimming with a current down a river, it is definitely classified differently than something like what I typically do, where there is no current assistance for the most part. And it sounds like when you got into open water swimming, you talk about your, that 10 K, but then you did a quite a few channel crossings 
And mm-hmm. it's kind of weird to uh, to say that the English Channel is one of your more minor accomplishments because mm-hmm. I feel like when we think of like great open water swims, we're thinking of the English Channel. But and then it was, you know, you did the English, you did the Catalina Channel, the English Channel, Manhattan Island, which I believe is called the Triple Crown of open water mm-hmm. swimming channels. And yep. but then that wasn't enough. So you go from swimming, you know, once across the channel to thinking you need to do you know, out and back. How did, you know, how did that happen? Why did you get, you know, from one point to another and decide you needed to start doing double crossings? Well, I think it started mostly with the English Channel. So the English Channel was my third big marathon swim. I did Catalina first and then around Manhattan and then the English Channel. And when I finished the English Channel, I got out and thought, whoa, I could have done that twice. I just had a really good day and I had trained really well. And it was a beautiful swim. And so um, when you finish those three, like you said, it's considered the triple crown. And a lot of people just stop after that. But I knew that I was not ready to stop. So um, I started thinking of other places that I could swim or other challenges I could take on. Just because simply the English Channel was such a wonderful swim. And I just felt like I could do more than just swim for 11 or 12 hours at a time. And so one of your first double crossings, I believe, was in Lake Tahoe. And -hmm. to me, this is fascinating because I'm actually planning for a friend's birthday this summer. We're doing the swim across Lake Tahoe where we swim the width of Lake Tahoe. Uh And we do it as a six-person relay. Uh (laughs) And you swam the length of Lake Tahoe, which I think is around 21, 22 miles. And you swam it twice there and back. Yep. So... I mean, how <laughs> like, that is incredible. What did you eat? Like, how did you, uh, you know, is it, it's cold too. How do you deal with those kind of temperatures? Um, let's see here. So I learned a lot on Lake Tahoe because it is very different to go from swimming. It took me 11 hours and 20 minutes to get across the English channel. And it took me a little bit longer than that to get one way across Lake Tahoe. And so I remember sitting on the shore at the halfway point and thinking, oh gosh, this was my longest swim. And now I have to go back and do it again. So I learned a lot. I wasn't probably entirely prepared for that swim, but mostly I eat mostly carbohydrates. So it's all liquid form. And I just mix my carbs. I use a product called CarboPro. And I mix that with with, um, either apple juice or Gatorade, depending on what kind of swim I'm doing. And then we just throw in some solids here and there. So On Lake Tahoe, I had to experiment a lot. So I tried to eat things like carrots, which went down really well. Learned that peanut butter sandwiches do not go down very well. Chocolate chip cookies, I think we ate a lot of on that trip as well. Um, So just a lot of learning, um, trying to make sure you're staying hydrated, making sure you have enough electrolytes so that you don't bonk at the end. Um, I actually swam the second half of Lake Tahoe faster than the first half, which shows me that I did kind of figure out some nutrition along the way. So it was a huge learning experience. And I got lucky that we had really good weather. My boat captain knew the lake really well. And my crew kind of knew how to handle it when the peanut butter sandwich didn't go down so well. And you mentioned that you sat on the shore at the halfway point. So you can Mm -hmm. get out of the water. Could you have like gone and taken a nap somewhere, come back eventually, and it all just adds into your time. And then when you're in the water, can, can you hang on to anything, you know, or what if it's like a log? Like, can you hang on to a log versus like a boat, you know, like, sure. or are you just free floating when you're in the water? <laughs> yeah, those are actually really good questions. So um, English Channel rules when you're doing a marathon swim allow you to um, clear the water 
So you clear it and then you have to go right back in and you have to start swimming within 10 minutes. So that's if you're doing multiple crossings of the English Channel. So we followed those same rules when I did Lake Tahoe and any other swim where I've had to get out and get back in. So I did, I cleared the water, um, cleared the shore, and then immediately went back in and I sat just in the water waist deep or so for just, I don't even remember a few minutes because it was getting kind of cold just sitting there and it was like three in the morning. Um, so sitting there not moving was a little chilly. So started swimming pretty much right away after that. And then you made a good point too about marathon swimming rules is that you're not allowed to hang on to anything. So no one's allowed to touch you. You can't touch a boat. You can't hang on to a buoy. You're pretty much on your own. So if you take a break in the middle of the lake, um, you're just treading water. Um, so your crew throws your water bottle to you and you stop for about 30 seconds to a minute, tread water, drink it, and then start swimming again. And I mean, have you done any really cold water swims? Because I mean, to me, Lake Tahoe is, it's, I like cold water, but it's cold. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I think it's around like, I don't know, you know, 60 degrees, I guess it can vary depending on when you're doing your swim, but do you do anything special to handle cold temperatures? So I've done quite a bit of cold water. Most people do consider Lake Tahoe cold. Um, they also think the English Channel as being cold. So when I was training for the English Channel as being my first real cold water swim, um, I did a lot of just cold water training. You just have to be in it as much as possible. Since then, I've done swims that are even colder than the 60s. We did a few years ago swim across Loch Ness in Scotland, and that water averaged right around 55 degrees. And it took me about 10 hours to swim across Loch Ness. And that was definitely the longest I'd been in water that that was that cold. It started off about 52, warmed up to about 55, and then cooled off kind of towards the end of the swim. And then I've also done what's called an ice mile, where I swam one mile in 39-degree water. Oh. Um, and that was really cold. Were there <laughs> other people? That? Yeah, like, <laughs> just you? <laughs> sure. So usually if you want to do that, some places you can do it as a group swim where it's like a race. Um, other times you just organize it on your own because there's not a lot of people that want to do an ice mile. So we just did it, me and one of my friends. We decided we wanted to do it. Wanted to do it. And so we got a medical team out. Um, there are parameters and rules for an ice mile. And my friend Carl and I did it at a lake um, here in Denver, outside of Denver. In the middle of winter? I mean, wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we did it in November. I think the, it was either the week before or the week after Thanksgiving. It's not official, but we kind of think we maybe did it at the highest altitude because we did it. It was like 8,000 feet where we did it. And we're pretty sure most people don't get 8,000 feet ice miles. But that's just our unofficial claim to fame. That is mind-boggling. I cringe sometimes <laughs> getting in the pool when it's below 80. So I can't even imagine. But... After Tahoe, you did a double crossing of Lake Memphremagog, on which is up on the border yes. of Canada and Vermont. I think I got the name of that lake, Correct. right? Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that one was 30 hours and one minute, and that officially put you into the 24-hour club for marathon swimming. Mm -hmm. But that didn't seem to satisfy you because in 2016, you swam 80 miles across Lake Powell on the Arizona-Utah border, and that one was 56 hours five minutes setting the world record for the longest solo nonstop unassisted current neutral swim. So there's this video of you coming out of the water after 56 hours <laughs> of swimming and you were jumping, you were energetic and you were totally, you know, with it. 
So how, mm-hmm. what do you credit, you know, that type of energy to after more than two days straight of swimming? And, you know, I guess, yeah, let's start there. <laughs> sure. I trained a lot. I spent a, a lot of time training. I also took some caffeine supplements and with my electrolytes. Um, so that definitely helped me um, starting probably around, I don't know, 36 hours or so. I was having just not actually a lot of caffeine, but a decent amount. I was really worried about staying awake the second night. Um, so we started it just before sunset on the second night. So I think that kept me kind of lucid. And then I really just think adrenaline was what pulled me out of the water. And we could see the finish for so long and the water was so calm. By the time I got there, it was just like this huge relief. Um, and I just, I don't know, I was pretty excited. So I fell asleep not too long after that video. <laughs> And so what you mentioned the caffeine, like, I'm just really curious about the sleep deprivation when you are going Mm -hmm. for, you know, multiple days swimming through an entire night. And also just the mental part of that. I I haven't done events that lasted 24 hours. Alyssa has, and, but she's talked about like when you see the sun go down and Mm -hmm. when it's dark for so long, like what that does to your mental. And then you get a second win when the sun comes up. Yeah, it's really hard. So when I did Lake Tahoe and Lake Memphremagog, both of those were just like right around the 24-hour mark. And I didn't seem to struggle too much in those swims. It was when I did Lake Powell and then the following year, Lake Champlain, where the first night was really, really hard for me. And I think it was mostly mental being afraid of what was going to happen on the second night because it's never easy to stay awake for 24 hours no matter what. And so I really, on both swims, struggled the most on the first night. And then once the sun came up on the start of the second day, really did kind of get a second wind. And the second night on both swims was far easier mentally than the first night. I don't know if it was just, especially on Lake Powell, the first time I did it, I was petrified. I worked myself up into a real real bad place over the first night. Um, and it really took my crew kind of halfway through that second day to talk me off the ledge. I was really ready to quit because I didn't think that I could do a second night, but they gave me some solid foods to eat. We started taking a little bit of caffeine just to give me a little bit of a mental boost. And then once you're kind of in it, it's not as bad as you kind of build it up to be in your head. Some people told me to expect to hallucinate, and I was lucky in both swims I did not hallucinate at all, which was really nice because I don't know if I would have been able to handle it if I had been seeing weird things or thinking the canyon walls were going to fall down on top of me. It's kind of scary, and I definitely did not know what to expect going into Lake Powell. There's a big difference between 30 hours and 56 hours, and I had no idea what was going to happen. Do you think you've ever fallen asleep while you were swimming? Because, you know, you hear stories about people (laughs) running and kind of falling asleep and biking even. Right. And I guess along with that, you know, well, is your crew prepped for something like that to happen? And, you know, at what point do you guys kind of make a game plan for safety? Of what point they would have to make a decision to touch you and assist you? I definitely tried my hardest to fall asleep. (laughs) Um, You hear stories about people who can sleep when they swim. Um, As far as I know, I did not fall asleep, even though I know on Lake Powell, especially I had my eyes shut and I would be like, okay, go to sleep, Sarah, go to sleep. But I don't think I managed even a couple of strokes with my eyes shut asleep. So um, 
I know that I did not sleep, even though I really wanted to. And then I did have a game plan with my crew. They knew, especially at nighttime, to watch me. And if I stopped moving, they were supposed to jump in and grab me. Um, and that would have ended my swim had that happened. We would. It's not like they would have turned me over, woken me up, and I would have kept going. Um, <laughs> if they had jumped in and grabbed me, that would have been that would have been it. So your world record swim in Lake Powell was was long. Most people would consider eighty miles pretty long, but mm-hmm. that wasn't long enough for you. And so in August 2017, this was just last year, you set out to break your own record. Why go longer? Why not go longer? If you jump out of the water and you're jumping and happy and giggling, (laughs) clearly there was more left in the tank. So um, we drove to Lake Powell from Denver. It's about, I can't remember, six or seven hours. We made it maybe three-fourths of the way home, and my husband said it out loud. He said, so, 100 miles? And I was like, yeah. So um, knowing he was on board uh, made it a lot easier to go ahead and pull the trigger and decide that we were going to try for a hundred miles at some point in time, because why not? I imagine it's pretty straightforward to kind of plan for the next one after a big success. Have you also had to kind of decide to try again after failures or multiple failures with the marathon swimming? That is a good question. So I haven't had a lot of failures I've been really lucky out of circumstances like Powell. I could have failed had the wind been terrible or if I had gotten sick. So um, I've been, I count myself very lucky in 2012, I was swimming the Tampa Bay marathon swim and they pulled everybody. It was a race and a storm blew in. And so we had to get out. Everyone got out and that swim somewhat haunts me a little bit. I, I sort of wish I had just kept swimming in a lightning storm, which is not very practical, but part of me wished that I had just said, heck, I'm just going to take my kayaker and we're going to finish because I was only maybe an hour or two from finishing that swim when we had to get out. And so that swim just kind of eats at me a little bit. But at the time I was leading up to my English Channel swim. And so there was no opportunity really to say, let's go back and try it again, or even to say, oh, I'm such a failure. I didn't make it because I was already focusing on the English channel that was coming up in just a couple of months. Also in the English channel, I went over for two weeks and the weather was awful and nobody swam in those two weeks. So I went home without having swum the English channel. And about a week and a half after I got home, my boat captain called and he said, Hey, we had someone drop. Do you want to come back? And I said, Oh, I don't know if I can do that. I tapered before I went to England and we sat there for two weeks and I didn't really swim a whole lot while I was there. And then it's been a week and a half since I've been home. So I haven't really been swimming in five, six weeks. I don't know if I'm in enough shape to swim the English channel. Um, and I don't know if I can find crew to go back with me. And so I thought about it. I talked to my, my boss to see if I could take another, you know, week and a half to go back to England again. And she was supportive. And so we did decide, heck, we'll go back and give it a shot. And that was probably my first like real learning experience that I need to just trust my training and trust my body. And I don't have to be the fastest. I didn't swim the English Channel nearly as fast as I wanted to. But my focus went from going as fast as possible to just making it since I didn't feel as though I was completely trained up after having sat around for a few a few weeks. And then when I came out feeling so great on the other side, um, having dialed it back just a little bit, that, you know, again, that was another, heck, maybe I can swim a lot further than I think I can. So there was that. And then in 2000 and 
14, I planned a 68-mile swim kind of off the coast of California, and we didn't even leave Denver because the weather was so bad, and the boat pilot called me and said, there's a wind advisory, you can't go. And so we rescheduled for the following week, and the same thing happened again. And then after that, I said, you know what, I just, I think I'm going to have to cancel this swim. And, you know, I trained really hard for that swim all summer long, sacrificed a lot to not even not even leave town. So that swim, you know, again, was kind of a learning experience as to, you know, what do you do if there's bad weather? How do you plan for contingencies and things like that? And you've kind of alluded to this, the logistics of these world record Mm -hmm. swims seem extra daunting. So when you were planning this swim in Lake Champlain, uh, you mentioned, you know, finding a lake big enough to swim a hundred miles since you wanted to go a hundred miles. And then Mm -hmm. also making sure you get a boat big enough And then also finding your crew. How do you go about selecting the people who are on that boat, you know, making sure that they are in it for possibly three days nonstop? Mm -hmm. The logistics of those big swims, especially when you're self-supporting like I was in Lake Powell and Lake Champlain, are really, really hard. Finding the boat is usually the biggest piece. We were, I think, a week and a half out before my Lake Champlain swim was about to start. And someone who had rented the houseboat before before me crashed it. And Lake Champlain doesn't have a lot of houseboat or boat rentals on it. And we didn't have a boat. That rental didn't have a, a place to or a way to replace the boat for me. We couldn't find another houseboat. Um, and I had 10 or 11 people scheduled to come on a boat. And you can't do that in just a pontoon boat. They need a place to sleep. They need a place to go to the bathroom. And it was almost a disaster. And, you know, I put the call out to my crew. Does anyone have any ideas? Someone suggested that we try and find a sailboat. So we found a huge, gigantic sailboat that was only supposed to host like 10 people, I think. And we were over by a couple. And so we got the sailboat. I found another pontoon boat just at the last minute to try and support the swim. So logistically, that was hard. Um, We had to completely redo my route at that point. Um, We had planned to swim from the south all the way to the north, but the way the boat rental was available, we couldn't do that. So we started at the north, swam, you know, halfway down and then back up so that we had time to get the boat back in time. Worked out for the good because when we were kind of planning as well, we realized that there is a slight current in that lake and we wanted to make sure we didn't have a current. So it's better that we swam out and back. So that way it negated any current that might have been on the lake. So like just logistically, there's a million moving parts from getting the boats to arranging travel for everybody for Lake Champlain, especially I had people coming from all areas of the country and we had people from Seattle and from San Francisco and from Boston and everywhere in between. So getting everyone with their flights and car rentals and who's going to carpool with who, um, all of that figured out is a pain. So there's just a ton that goes into it. Unfortunately, I really like planning things. So I enjoy that part of it a lot. So that part doesn't bother me at all. I'm pretty detail oriented and I make Excel spreadsheets like no one can imagine to keep track of where everyone's going to be and what I need and who's bringing what. So there's that fun part of it. And then picking crew is very important um, because you do need people who know you. Um, You also need people who are kind of independent to act as your observers um, so that they don't 
they're not the ones that are getting in and pace swimming or doing your feeds. They're the ones that are just simply watching and documenting. And you need people who can just kind of get along with each other. Um, when you put three or 10 people or more on a boat for three days, it can get a little ugly. So you just need to take that into consideration and try and get a good mix of personalities, people who are good problem solvers, people who aren't going to get seasick. There's just a lot of things to take into account when you're picking a crew. And so this is probably a question you get like right off the bat a lot of times, but I'm dying mm-hmm. to know how you even train for this, right? So do you do most of it in the pool or open water? And what kind of swim mileage do you do on a daily and weekly basis leading up to some of these? It's a really daunting task to train for this. When I was training for Lake Powell, I was really scared that I wasn't doing enough because I had nothing to base it off of. And there's not really many people you can ask, what did you do? So um, I really had to go off of just the knowledge and experience that I had from some of my past swims at 50 miles and 44 miles just to, okay, well, if that's what worked for that, I know that I need to increase it, but how, by how much I wasn't sure. So Lake Powell was definitely an experiment in, am I doing enough? So on average, I do probably trying to think I, I swim in the pool and in lakes just as much as possible. In Denver, it's hard to find open water um, where I can swim for a long time. There's just not a lot of water and there's a lot of stupid rules and regulations about around when you can swim in state parks. So I have to do a lot of pool swimming. I probably spend when I'm really training about 30 hours a week in the water on top of my full-time job. So I swim usually a couple times a week in the morning and after work and then do longer swims pretty much every day after work. And then the weekends, I do a lot of longer swims. So I count everything in meters. So it's hard for me to tell you how many miles it is. But I train about 100,000 or at least 100,000 meters a week for a few weeks when I'm trying to really gear up. Just for context, for like a regular English Channel swim or something like that, I was doing about 60,000 a week. And so kind of took it building from there. So, you know, I build between 60 and a hundred K a week. So what, what's a long swim? Like how many kilometers are we talking for a long like for weekend a swim? Long training swim? Yeah. Um, so that's a good question too. I, I do you have friends who join you mostly. Okay. Hours. Yes. okay what are the hours? Yeah. Hours yeah. is fine. So, <laughs> yeah. So somewhere between like, 10 to 12 hours is a, just a, a long training swim Where do you on find the weekend. a pool that's open? That well, that's why I have to find a lake. So <laughs> I try and do those long ones in pool. a lake. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that would be terrible in the pool for sure. And yeah, I do, um, a lot of friends will come and swim parts of it with me. So they'll come and swim a couple hours in the morning and someone else will come maybe in the middle and someone else later. I do an awful lot of just completely by myself lake swims though. My husband just will know that, hey, Sarah's going to the lake and she's going to swim for 12 hours today. Um, if I'm not back in 13 or 14 hours, he knows to come looking for me. So I do quite a bit just solo, but I am lucky that I have good friends who will come and do some of it with me at least. And so what goes through your mind when you're about to take on your next swim? Because now you've done enough to know certainly that you're going to have some, you know, highs, but you're also going to have some lows. Mm -hmm. And I imagine it's harder when you, you know, what's coming kind of in a way. So what kind of things do you do to psych yourself up to be 
mentally as strong as you can be before you enter the water? You know, I found going from Lake Powell to Lake Champlain that I was much mentally, much more mentally prepared for Lake Champlain. I didn't have half of the nerves going 100 miles as I had the summer before going for 80 because I did know what was going to happen. And I knew that I had battled through it in Lake Powell. And I knew that I had trained better and smarter for Lake Champlain than I had the year before. And so I I didn't have to psych myself up too much. I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to hurt. But it didn't. The, that thought didn't really bother me too much. So there wasn't a lot of psyching myself up. I was much calmer and much just I was better for Lake Champlain. And I kind of found that with a lot of my swims is that I do. It's like once I do it and I, I know how much it can hurt then it's not so bad the next time around. And the truth is my hardest, most painful swim was my first one. Up to this point, I still have not come out of the water as sore and as beat up after any other swim as I did after Catalina. And so it can only get better from there. So until I hit my Catalina sore, I'm good. (laughs) So what about wildlife? So I know your swim in Lake Champlain was in a lake, And I've actually swum in Lake Champlain before because the USA triathlon nationals were held Mm -hmm. in that lake a while ago. And I did not realize that there are lampreys in Lake Champlain. (laughs) I Googled what Mm -hmm. a lamprey was and the picture I got was terrifying, right? It's like an eel with massive teeth or something that like sucks your blood. So did you have any wildlife encounters during your record setting swim or really any swim? I mean, we, we all know the S word when you're uh, out in the ocean. Have we had any sure. encounters either? So the lampreys, they are terrifying creatures. And I did not want to swim Lake Champlain. We actually considered it when I was looking for lakes for Lake Powell. And I said, Nuh-uh, there's these creepy things in here and I am not getting in that lake, period. So we took it off the table for Lake Powell, and then um, when we were coming back around and trying to find another lake to do even further, my friend said, Sarah, you're going to have to swim in Lake Champlain. And I was like, no, I'm not. (laughs) I won't do it. And we actually, he found me some professors who study lampreys. Those people are out there. Um, And they assured me that even though they're creepy and scary, they um, wouldn't actually really hurt me. They can kill a fish, but I'm human and I have a brain. So... If they latched onto me, I have the ability to pull them off. I talked to a couple of friends who had been attacked by a lamprey, and they assured me that a lamprey bite is not nearly as bad as sea lice or a jellyfish. So I just went into it thinking, all right, if one gets me, I'm just going to just you twist and pull, and it'll pop right off. And we did. We swam through. I say we um, because my crew was with me, but I was the only one in the water. We swam through just a school of them. I don't know if that's the proper term for lampreys, but we swam through a huge group of them and I didn't see them, but my crew above me could just see them swarming around me. And I am really lucky that they did not grab me. My husband swears that they were as big as his forearm. Um, (sighs) The ones I had seen pictures of, you could just like grasp, you know, around your hand. If one as big as my husband's forearm had grabbed me, I wouldn't have been able to get that sucker off, I don't think. So I'm very lucky. None of them, none of them got me. And when I was finishing Lake Champlain, because if you remember, I went out and back, um, I had to swim through that same area at about midnight or one in the morning. And we were all, even my crew, we were just all on edge waiting for them to get me. But again, we got really lucky. So I swam through them twice and nothing bothered me. 
so yeah, that was probably the worst part of that Lake Champlain swim was like, just expecting any moment that a lamprey was just going to come up from nowhere and grab onto my thigh um, in the middle of the night. So that was a huge, a huge mental barrier to get over, probably more than the idea of swimming for three days. And so talking about the Lake Champlain swim, which again is an out and back 52 miles south and then a 52 mile return trip that you get to the return to where you started from. And it's now the middle of the night. It's just before 4am and it's days later. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I can't even really fathom that, but I can imagine I finished a hundred mile running race once and it was a similar time of day when I finished. And there was, they have you run around like down this little street and then you finish and you know, you finished because there was a guy sitting in a chair and you, basically had to wake him up and tell him you were done mm-hmm. and he like checked you mm-hmm. off on the clipboard and then you were done right like was, and I imagine this is kind of similar but the feet is just so much bigger and so what is it like can you just talk about what it is that drives you to do these things without all of the fanfare attached and you know what it is that just keeps you searching and pushing your limits to keep going even when you know you just have to go to sleep afterwards and wake up and go back to your job Mm -hmm. probably a couple days later. Right. Yeah. Marathon swimming is not glorious and it's not a spectator sport. And so I definitely did not get into it hoping for fame and fortune. Um, I think there's some people out there who do, you know, hope that, you know, by their swimming successes, they'll make a lot of money, but that has never been my motivation for me. It really is just, you know, seeing what my body can do. When I was a kid in high school and college, you know, I could last at swim practice longer than anybody. You know, I was slower in races, but in practice, when it came, you know, towards the end of this end of the workouts, I was always, you know, swimming faster than I had at the beginning. We never could figure out why I wasn't a great pool racer because in the pool, all you can, the furthest you can swim is a mile. And you know, it wasn't until I was an adult and I realized it's like, oh, I should, I need this distance thing is what I need to be doing. So for me, it's just, I don't know if it's just a result from not ever being successful as a competitive pool swimmer. Um, And I'm just trying to find out, you know, where I can be my best because it's not about being the best. I don't, I don't have a goal of being better than anybody else. I hope that there's some kid out there you know, who really wants to swim a hundred miles. Maybe, um, I know a couple of young girls that follow my swims and I'm hoping that, you know, when they get a little bit older, they're the ones that are out there, you know, pushing the limits. So I don't, for me, it's not about being better than anybody or, you know, trying to outdo anyone. It's just trying to outdo myself and to see what my body can push through and survive and, you know, come out on the other side. And you mentioned young girls being inspired by you. Mm-hmm. And I am curious because I believe that when you swam in Lake Powell, you broke the record that was previously held by a woman. Mm-hmm. And now you are a woman. You hold this overall record. It's, you know, men and women. Do you think women are, are better suited for extra long distance swimming? You know, people ask me that all the time. And I don't, I don't want to put the men down. Um, Because I know there's a lot of fabulous men out there who are strong and great swimmers and who could probably do it if they wanted to. But I don't know. I just think there is something about being a woman that makes us better suited and maybe we're mentally tougher. I don't know what it is, but um, I'm really proud that, 
you know, I am a woman and that the woman whose record I broke is, a, you know, a woman. It's just, it's nice to know that marathon swimming is a sport where there are so many strong, successful women and where the men in our support are supportive of it too. You know, we don't have men in marathon swimming who are putting us down or trying to tell us that we're not good enough. The men in this sport just seem to embrace us and respect us and not care so much when we, when we beat them. So it's just an, it's a nice environment to be a woman and to be breaking barriers in a sport like this. Sarah, you had some big swim plans for 2018, but life took an unexpected turn for you in late 2017 when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. I believe that you were able to continue swimming through chemotherapy, but can you talk a little bit about how you've used your accomplishments with swimming in your battle with cancer and where you stand now with it? Sure. So I think my doctors don't know what to do with me. Um, they are not used to having someone say, Hey, I swam a 10 K and I had chemo, you know, I had chemo on a Wednesday and I swam a 10 K on a Saturday. People don't know what to do about that. They think I'm crazy. So, um, definitely when I was going through chemo, I was not at my, at my strongest, but a lot of just mental toughness, I think that I have developed from all my years of swimming really helped me power through chemo as best as one can. Um, I think all of the water that I'm used to drinking definitely helped with chemo. I'm a huge water drinker. A lot of people need to go in for fluids when they're on chemo. And I just never needed that because I consume a large amount of water on a daily basis. And I do just think being as active as possible when you're putting your body through things like chemo is really helpful. There were definitely days when I was too sick and too tired to go make it down to the pool. But on the days that I was feeling good enough, we made an effort. Even if I couldn't drive myself, I would go and swim, even if it was just for 45 minutes, just to get in the water and keep that going. So I I did five months of chemo. And then a month after I finished chemo, so I finished chemo on May 1st. And then a month later, I did a right-sided mastectomy. And so that was on May 30th. So I am just about a month or so outside of my mastectomy. And I haven't been cleared to get back in the water yet. So it's been a really long month of waiting to get back in the water. But I'm told I'm allowed to get in on Saturday for 30 minutes only. So um, I'm very much looking forward to my first post-surgery swim. And then in about three weeks, I'm going to start radiation. So um, I'll have five weeks of radiation. So hopefully all of my treatment will be done by the end of August. We did find out um, at my surgery because they took out all of my breast tissue and examined it to see if any of the tumors were still there and they didn't find anything. So chemo did not, they don't like to use the word cured, but chemo killed all of my cancer. So I am currently cancer free and radiation will just do any cleanup to make sure hopefully that it won't ever, ever come back again. Awesome news. That is, that's so great to hear Sarah, because you know, we love hearing how much you love swimming and mm -hmm. I'm excited thinking about you getting back in the water for those 30 minutes on Saturday and kind of starting that next journey. And I'm sure you have ideas for, you know, what's next. You don't seem like the kind of person who's settled right. and who is completely oh. satisfied with everything you've done. So thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. And we'll be super excited to like cheer you on and, and just keep in touch and see what, what, what great things you accomplish next. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. So Alyssa, 
After hearing about Sarah's multi-day adventure, albeit swimming, are you taking away any of her tips for your own multi-day endurance feat coming up? Well, I think the biggest takeaway for me is that I am going to keep my fingers and toes crossed until the day I start the run that I have whatever gene she has that she doesn't need enough, like that much sleep. And she's just able to kind of go through it because I think that's such a gift for this kind of thing. So I'm just, you know, everything's, everything's hoping for that. And I think her just outlook on it in general was just kind of really uplifting for me to hear in the sense of, you know, she just kept taking it one stroke at a time and was just doing it. And that's what she loved and she was good at. And it, it's worked out kind of for her. So I'm kind of hoping for the same kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And at least there aren't any lampreys on the, on the long trail or that I, none that I know of. <laughs> there's a, there's some other predators, I guess, but. <laughs> you have wild dogs, Ramona. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, it was an incredible, incredible story. And just an update for our listeners. I believe Sarah did get in the pool and she got her 30 minute swim in last week. So we are excited to watch her, you know, as she, as she builds back up and to find out what's next. Cause I think, you know, we, we all know Something's there's going to be next. more. Totally. <laughs> and before we go, Haley, just some housekeeping items. Of course we have the mailbag. So if people have questions for us that they would love us to answer, you can email us at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. We also have Erin, our lovely editor, Erin's walk that she is doing this October, the out of darkness community walk in Seattle to raise money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We will link to that in the show notes. And then our Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit, you can go to outspokensummit.com and keep checking. I know they keep posting the more schedule items and see who we've announced as speakers are coming and come join us there so you can sign up there. And Haley, I Yes, think- November 30th, Tucson, Arizona. It's going to be fun. And I think that's all we have for this week, Kaylee. All right, Alyssa. Enjoy your last couple weeks of training. I'll talk to you soon. Enjoy the Bozeman sunshine. Talk to you later. I will. Bye. biking you're really moving your feet and it's fun because you can actually steer where you're going when you want to whereas in swimming and running you might have to plan ahead because in both of those things either in swimming you can run out of breath or in running you could trip and fall the iron woman podcast is produced by live feisty media our awesome hosts are Alyssa gadeski and Haley chura our editor is Aaron Hamilton. Our social media queen is Danielle Adino. And our producer is my mom, Sarah Gross. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes. And have a great week of swimming, biking, and running. Bye for now. Bye.